series on worship and public worship especially. We come to a time where we try to understand the principle that undergirds the worship, the public worship of God. And uh, your uh, elder Nick and myself this morning before we prayed for the services, one of our concerns was that we would not be a congregation that would do things based on tradition. We do not want our children to be psalm singers because it's their tradition, but it's because it's the testimony of the word of God. In the same way, just as we have heard in Acts 17, how fitting, how appropriate. We are called to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And so actually this afternoon, we're going to be, though the sermon text is listed as Deuteronomy 12 verse 32, which it certainly is. Uh, it's going to come from uh, portions of the word that I want to read before the sermon uh, as well. So we'll start where we have started thus far in Leviticus 10. As you've turned there first, then we'll go to Deuteronomy 12, and then we'll go to Mark chapter 7. So first, we're going to consider Leviticus 10, which should become uh, should have become to you a familiar text. But it's one that we must remember continually. So Leviticus 10, the first three verses, let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word that it would lead us to his truth. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Amen. Let's turn next then to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 12, just a couple of books forward. And we're going to pick up our reading at verse 28, Deuteronomy 12, and verse 28, and read to the end of the chapter. Now, this is in the context of worship. Verse 28. Observe and hear all these words which I command thee, that it may go well with thee and with thy children after thee forever, when thou doest that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord thy God. When the Lord thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them, and thou succeedest them, and dwellest in their land. Take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them, after that they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. For every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Amen. And now let's turn to the New Testament, Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. And we'll pick up our reading on verse 6 and read to verse, I'll let you read to verse 13. All right, Mark 7, verse 6. 
Now he is speaking to the Pharisees here. He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban, which is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray for the preaching of it. Our Father and our God, we come now to the preaching of your holy word, and the aim in the preaching, tonight especially, is that we would become better worshipers of you, O God. That our hearts, Father, would be inclined to you, saying, Not my will, but thy will be done, especially in worship. And so, Lord, as the minister comes to preach, help remind him that he has not magisterial authority, but ministerial authority as an ambassador only of Christ. And so, help him be a true ambassador who will only deliver what Christ has delivered to him. Those things which he has said, that all that I have commanded, I am to teach. His ministers are to teach. And so help me teach only what Christ has commanded. And so, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit of truth would rest on the preaching of the word. And those who hear would also have that same spirit, the spirit that inspired these three great texts. To demonstrate our duty before you, O God. And so, Father, to that end, I pray, Lord, that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, we began our series on worship with the holiness of God. And the holiness of worship. That in worship we draw nigh to the special presence of a holy God. He said, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. I will be hallowed. In other words, I will be treated as I am. Holy. And then we heard of the necessity we have for public worship. That we are a holy assembly. Come into the holiest place astonishingly by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now, having embraced these truths, we now ask, what rule must be followed to please a holy God in his holy worship service? And the rule was alluded to in Leviticus chapter 10, 
when Nadab and Abihu were consumed for bringing strange fire. And note well the phrase which he commanded them not. You're starting to see the rule plainly there, which he commanded them not. And what God has not commanded in worship is as strange fire to him. And that rule is what is called in our circles the regulative principle of worship, or RPW for short. And it is that rule for worship that I wish to preach on today. It's a rule that is found in the worshipers that the Father seeks. Those worshipers whose motto is, as I prayed, not my will, but thy will be done. Which is our concern as worshipers, or it should be anyhow. And yet, yet that is the one question that the worshipers we find in our day and age especially don't ask. What is thy will, O God, for your worship? Instead, we lean on our traditions. And so, as we consider this biblical principle of worship, we're going to do so under three heads. And the first is to consider the doctrine of the RPW, or the regulative principle. The second is to consider the heart of the RPW, because there is this false claim that this is Phariseeism. But let me show you from Mark 7 what Phariseeism really is. And then third, we consider who it is that is the king of the regulative principle. Who is the king of the regulative principle? Okay, well first, as per your outline on your, on your bulletin, we consider the doctrine, that is boys and girls, the teaching of the regulative principle. And this is the principle that governs the worship of God in Reformed churches. Or at least it should. Because this is what the Reformed churches from the continent to the three kingdoms have taught. Is the biblical principle of worship. Because we are Reformed according to what? The word of God. We are Reformed according to the word of God. But before I consider this biblical reformed teaching, I want to consider another Protestant doctrine which has become more mainstream. It's a principle of worship that is found in Lutheran and today most evangelical churches. And it's called the normative principle of worship, which simply says that what the scripture forbids is forbidden for us in worship. And so, if the scripture says, thou shalt not make unto thee a graven image, we must not do it. I think, sad to say, many who hold the principle are rather inconsistent. You find graven images of Christ in many Protestant churches, breaking the very principle they profess. But the great problem with the normative principle is that of the multiplying of idolatries, there is no end. Calvin rightly said that our heart is a forge of idols. Man's heart loves idolatry, friends. Uh, Friends, this Bible is very big, isn't it? But all the books on the earth could not contain the idolatries man can imagine. The normative principle, in other words, cannot be our guide because it cannot speak to man's idolatrous heart, which can create all kinds of idolatries at the drop of a hat. 
Consider all that you find in worship services today that are not expressly forbidden by the word of God. You will find plays and skits, and they will be considered part of worship. Smoke machines and light shows, considered part of worship. Uh, A big Baptist church, um, I'm not picking on them because they're Baptist, but there's a big Baptist church down in Dallas that has an indoor fireworks display on the 4th of July and sings patriotic hymns to America. Now, is any of that expressly forbidden in the word of God? No. Yet, I suspect many of you here feel something is wrong and something is off about all of that. But that's the problem of the normative principle in a nutshell, friends. Some of us feel it's wrong. Others of us do not feel the same way. You will say, as I hope you do, I don't like dancing in the service, so I won't go. But another will say, oh, how that ministers to my soul. How beautiful it is to have dance in the service. And this is undoubtedly to Satan's great joy. Because now man has become the audience for worship and not God. And the church then starts to cast stones at one another. One says, I don't like contemporary worship. Another says, I don't like old time hymns. And the church is divided against itself. Christ is not glorified. And we have what we call the worship wars. But all of that is the fruit of this normative principle. This principle is not only, as I will show, unbiblical, but its fruit is to avert our thinking about what God desires. What God desires, friends. That phrase... Should it not ever be laid upon our hearts as worshipers? What God desires. And yet, it is not often considered in the normative principle. So that's the normative principle. That what is forbidden in the word is forbidden in worship. Now we look at the doctrine of the regulative principle, which says, and this is an important distinction, so listen carefully. What is not commanded by the word is forbidden. What is not commanded by the word is forbidden in worship. Do you hear the distinction there, boys and girls? We must have approval from God, a commandment from God to do something in worship. Uh, Consider Nadab and Abihu again, Leviticus 10 verse 1. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein, And put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord. And here again is the phrase you need to focus on, which he commanded them not. You will not find in the scriptures that it was forbidden for them to put strange fire on the altar. And under the normative principle, then they did nothing wrong. But God says, I never commanded them to do it. And so they were judged. And this is a very biblical principle. Uh, It is articulated in Deuteronomy 12, as you may have heard. Uh, As you heard in the reading of that passage, which deals with worship, verse 32 of Deuteronomy 12 says, What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. That's a very plain statement. 
on worship, friends. What he commands, we must do. We're not to add to it, nor are we to take away from it. See that both are, are not allowed by God. We cannot not do something that he has commanded. So we cannot decide, we just don't like the Lord's Supper, so we're not going to do it. Right? At the same time, we have to have positive warrant for anything that we do. We find that the Lord institutes the supper and we must do it as well as everything else that we do in our worship service. And what this principle is connected to, friends, and what we need to remember is that it is entirely concerned with God's honor and God's glory. That's what this principle is. He said, I will be hallowed in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. This principle is about the glory of God, where worshipers say, whatever you want, Lord, we will give you. He said, I will not give my glory to another. Boys and girls, you all know your catechism. What is the very first question? What is your chief end? Is it not to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? So God, now, to glorify God, right, and enjoy Him forever. So God is not saying you will not enjoy His worship when its aim is His glory. But mark this well, friends. You will only enjoy it correctly if, if you make His desires your desires. If you would pray as a worshiper the great petition, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That make your desires his desires. You know, when you desire God to be glorified in the worship of God, then you will truly enjoy God when you worship him, friends. So what is not commanded is forbidden, and what is commanded must be observed. And that's the regulative principle of worship. But this principle, and I want you to see the strength of it, because it is not an isolated principle. It coheres with other pillars in the Bible. And I want to show that to you this afternoon to show you that it is the regulative and not normative principle that actually coheres with who God is and it matches his character to a T. And for the sake of time, I want to highlight three pillars, only three that the RPW rests on. And the first is the sufficiency of Scripture. The second is the nature of God. And third, and this is something we need to remember, it also rests on the nature of man. So the first pillar, the sufficiency of the Holy Scripture. And the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is that the Word of God is the rule of faith and life. Sufficient for both. That God has sovereignly chosen to reveal all things which please him in the Bible. You likely have memorized 2 Timothy 3.16-17. through And think about this now in connection with worship. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God. Do we not hear that phrase? Moses the man of God. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Boys and girls, where do we go to find what pleases God? It's the Bible, isn't it, boys and girls? And what does the scripture say? That the man of God may be perfect, 
thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Who was Paul writing to? Timothy, a minister of the gospel, wasn't he? Yeah? And so, what is one of the functions of a minister of the gospel? It's to lead in worship, isn't it? Whether it is Timothy, myself, or your elders, we all are to look to the word to dictate worship. For the Bible is the rule of faith and life. Uh, If you look at your order of worship, you will see that it is chock full of the word of God for that reason. Scripture, 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 scripture. That's the way God has designed it to be. It's the rule of faith and life. And so the first pillar is that the regulative principle coheres with the sufficiency of Scripture. Everything you need to please God for His worship is found in the Scripture. Second, the RPW coheres with the nature of God. And I want to remind you of a few of His perfections that bear on this. First, His holiness. He is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And he says he must be sanctified by those that draw near him, that he must be approached with reverence and awe because he is a consuming fire. We heard that in the first sermon. And that consideration kicked off our series on worship. Both the Old and the New Testaments testify to it. We saw bookends of your Bible, Leviticus and Hebrews. Both preach the same message. God is holy. And as God is holy, He is also other. He is not like us. You know, our children's catechism that our youngest children memorize says that God is a spirit and He does not have a body like man. He's not like us. He's not carnal, but we are. Listen to what the Lord Jesus has to say in John 4, verses 23 and 24. The hour cometh. And now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. And notice how it is the the being of God that is connected to worship. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the saddest thing about the use of the scripture is to justify just about anything in worship, which is the opposite point. God is not like us. He is a spirit. He is not impressed in the things that impress us. He's not impressed in your liturgical dance. He's not impressed by your smoke machine or the suit that you wear even. Not impressed by all of that. He is a spirit and you must worship him in spirit and in truth. Those who will worship him in accordance with what he is. Do you think that a most pure and holy spirit like God cares about the things that we care about in the flesh? This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 And the only way, of course, to do that, if you don't know, is first of all to be born again by the Spirit. You cannot please God in worship unless you are born again and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then, to find the truth of worship in the Word of God, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, worship in spirit and in truth. Your Word, Lord, is both of the Spirit and of the truth. A third aspect of God's nature is that he is sovereign. 
He is a great king. And boy, this is where, sadly, right, we, we have to fight the greater church sometimes these days, which has been a decline. We have to fight to remind all that God is sovereign, sovereign over our election, sovereign over our salvation, sovereign, sovereign, sovereign. <laughs> Does that sovereignty not extend to worship then? It is his prerogative and not ours to dictate worship. I walk away from the idea of dictating anything in worship, friends. For God is my sovereign. You remember in Malachi, when the people brought corrupt sacrifices in that series, he had to remind them of his kingship. He had to say, Cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male and valeth, and sacrificed unto the Lord a corrupt thing. What was his explanation? For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. Malachi 1.14. How few of us, how few of us these days come before God recognizing he is a great king. He is my sovereign and I am his subject. He made me, he sustained me, he is pleased to redeem me for his own good pleasure. You need to emblazon a simple thought on your heart. It is his right to dictate terms and not mine. If you live your life that way, not just in worship, you will do well in his eyes. After all, I've already alluded to it. He dictates terms in other areas. What about our salvation? He says he will save us if we are in Christ. And that's it. Those are his terms. You can't change them on him. He says he will damn you if you try. He says you come to heaven in a particular way. No man comes to the Father but by me. Our religion is all about exclusivity and the sovereignty of God. And it must extend into worship as well. So that is our second pillar. That the regulative principle that God gets to command worship coheres with the nature of God who is holy, who is a spirit, and is our sovereign. And the last pillar that it coheres with has to do with who we are. First of all, let's even take the fall away from consideration at first. Man is God's servant. Man is God's servant. Even before the fall, we were his servants and he is king. In the first sermon, I demonstrated that we serve God in divine worship, or at least we should. And is it ever proper for the servant to dictate what the master wants? No, the servant doesn't dictate to the master what the servant wants, rather, I should have said that way. It is for the servant to give his master what his Lord wants. Isn't this, to riff on Paul, does not nature itself teach you these things? Does your employment not teach you this? Does your government not teach you this as well? It is not for me to dictate terms, friends. To have a servant's heart, as you are meant to have, is to fully embrace this principle. That you are merely the worshiper. How we have lost even the bare definition of the word. Worshiper. That implies your superior is the one being served. You are the worshiper made of dust. He is the king who has made all things by the word of his power and is the master. He is the one worshipped. And that should testify to this principle. 
And so even if we didn't fall, this principle would apply. But the worst problem for us as a people is that we are fallen. We are fallen, friends. And what of our heart? Does the Bible ever say, as the world does, uh, trust in your heart? It says the opposite. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We must always remember that we face our corrupt hearts daily. Do you believe you can trust your desires in worship if you couldn't find express warrant for your desires in the word? The culture has told Christian people, listen to your heart, but the word instead says the heart is deceitful above all things. Listen to the word of God, friends. It is common to hear somebody say this, and you probably have said it yourself as I have. Oh, how I love such and such in worship. Yet such a person rarely asks, but do I know what God loves in worship? Do I know what God loves? The fact that worshipers rarely have this kind of introspection tells us that we have the problem of Jeremiah 17:9. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. So, the doctrine of the RPW to recap is whatsoever is not commanded by God is forbidden, and whatsoever is commanded must be done. And the regulative principle we saw coheres with three pillars of truth. The sufficiency of scripture, the nature of God, and the nature of man. And so with the doctrine in place, let's look at our second heading, which is the heart of the RPW. Now, you will often hear an objection given. When, when you hear, <laughs> this is our deceitful heart. When man hears the word regulated, they immediately scream. They hate that word. And they say, well, this, this principle... It seems legalistic, like the doctrine of the Pharisees, making worship about do's and don'ts. Cold and dead orthodoxy is all that this is. But nothing is further from the truth, friends. Nothing is further from the truth. And granted, there are always going to be some, and dare I say I might even know a few, who are indeed cold and dead in their orthodoxy. Sure, fine, but don't use them as a straw man argument. The fact of the matter is this, that the heart of the RPW comes from a heart which loves God. You see, the heart that loves God hears the Savior say these words, If you love me, keep my commandments. It is the normative principle that gives God what he does not want. And does not ask, I will inquire as to what pleases my God. Which heart do you think really is connected to God? The one that asks, I will find worship. Let me find worship that is in line with what I enjoy. Or is it the heart that is after God that asks, let me give to God what he enjoys. Who's the legalist friend? Boys and girls, maybe for yourself as a demonstration, what if for your birthday your friends got you what they wanted instead of what you wanted? Would you not feel insulted like, don't you even know me? And why would you be so selfish as to do that? You know, this often 
people make jokes in this way, but I think there's a spiritual reality here. You know, uh, wives, would you not hate it if, if your husband got you what he wanted for his uh, for your birthday? A new power tool or bowling ball or something like that. Yet this might be humorous in a way. But this is the kind of thing that routinely happens in the majority of churches today. No one asking, what does God want? Everybody saying, give me what pleases me. You would not do it, and you should not do it, with your relatives and your friends. And you must certainly not do it with your God, your Father, your King, your Redeemer. How far, really... Friends, I'm going to press this point. How far our hearts must be to have our worship guided by any other principle. For 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says of the, the, the man or woman of God, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. Boys and girls, make this the principle of your own life, even today. Not just limited to worship, but especially in, in worship, of course. Whatever you do, make it your desire to be well-pleasing to your God. And when you are here in worship, be pleasing Him by serving Him, listening to Him, praising Him, praying to Him. Should this not be close to your heart if you love God? I ask all of us now, should this not be close to our heart if we love God? Let's consider where the worship wars began. I was going to read it, but I I thought better of it for time. But it began in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. I trust you know the text that the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had no respect. What I find most instructive on that text, and I'm going to look at the commentary from Hebrews in just a bit, was Cain's reaction when God told him that. That I have no respect to your offering. What was his reaction? Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. He did not like God telling him what was acceptable in worship. What sacrifice to bring to God. And he despised God for it. And he despised his brother too for bringing what God wanted. And what did he do to his brother, boys and girls? The very first murder is connected to worship. Solemn thing. Murdered his brother. It's a sad thing to say, friends, but both, you may have experienced it if you even dare utter the words regulative principle, but both horizontal and vertical displeasure is found in many who reject the RPW. They despise God for giving commandments in worship and they despise those who hold it, saying, you are cold and dead to me. As though dead in their eyes, just as Cain responded. I want you to consider the divine commentary on Genesis 4, Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, now, that's how it starts. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. It was by faith, friends, that Abel gave God what God desired. You see, sometimes people focus just on the fact that, uh, you know, Abel's sacrifice was, was, was acceptable to God because he had faith. No, 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 no. If you look at this text, it says, by faith, 
Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice, meaning that his faith moved him to give what God desired. It's not just the faith that's commended, but the sacrifice as well is commended, isn't it? Though dead, in the context of worship, Abel is preaching now. Because by faith, he gave a more excellent sacrifice. Because he knew what his God wanted. And I want you to be pressed on this point. A heart that loves God will give God what God wants. And at the end of the day, the RPW is that simple. It's really that simple. This is not cold orthodoxy, friends. This is heartfelt, experiential religion. And if some abuse it, that has no bearing on the principle. There are some who take the doctrines of grace and become hyper-Calvinists. That has no bearing on the doctrines of grace. There are some who become cold in their orthodoxy, sure, but they are straw men by which to beat this principle up with. So I want you to know this is not Pharisaism, friends. In fact, let Christ show you what true Pharisaism is in Mark 7. We've already read it. I'm going to read again verses 6 through 9. He cites the prophet Isaiah saying, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And listen how that's expressed. Howbeit in vain do they worship me. What an awful thing to hear that your worship may be in vain. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines, what? The commandments of men. For laying aside, what? The commandment of God. Ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Do you hear how many times the commandment of God is listed in this text. Christ shows you that there is a people who honor him with their lips, but their heart is far from him. And what is it that demonstrates their heart is far from from him? Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, laying aside the commandments of God. And why do they do it? That ye may keep your own tradition. That is Pharisaism, friends. It has nothing, nothing to do with law-keeping. Pharisaism is the rejection of God's commandments in favor of man's commandments. Pharisaism is not about the commandments of God, but somewhere in the evangelical mind in the last 100 or 200 years has erupted a toxic notion that the commandments are contrary to faith and love. But Jesus says, no, if you love me, keep my commandments. What proved that Cain did not love God? He did not keep the commandment God had given, but Abel did. The Pharisees did not love God and they put away his own commandments for their traditions, which they love. And boys and girls, I want you to remember, just because we call something a tradition does not mean it has to be old. That has nothing to do with the sense of the word. A a tradition could be five years old, or it could be two minutes old, or a thousand years old. Age is not the issue with tradition. The issue is whether it has divine warrant in the word of God. 
That's our concern. Not how old or new something is, but simply and plainly does it come from the word of God. Later in Mark 7.13, I read it. Jesus said of the Pharisees that they were making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered. Jesus shows us that God hates us not looking to his word. That if we loved God and we say we love God, we would search the scripture to make sure we don't bring in strange fire. Otherwise, he would say these chilling words, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Friends, this principle deals with the heart. Maybe you've never realized this. Maybe you've chafed against it saying this is legalism, but it is anything but. And the opposite of what we call the RPW is what the Bible calls will worship. Worshiping as you will. Colossians 2 verse 20 to 23, Paul said, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using? After the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship. That's where that word come, those words come from. And humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. This has been a constant struggle in the church. Uh, we've seen what the Roman Catholic Church has done, literally doing the things here in Colossians 2.20. Touch not, taste not, handle not, right? But they introduce commandments and doctrines of men. And the problem is that we are often guilty of the same. We are prone to will worship, worshiping according to our wills, our doctrines, our commandments, and not God's. As I've said plenty times this afternoon, the heart of the worshiper is not my will, but thy will be done. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Boys and girls, what was the awful refrain in the book of the Judges? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Does God ever commend commend that kind of thing? No. No, friends. And we must be very careful, especially in holy worship, to avoid that charge. And yet that seems to be the definition of worship in our time and place today, friends. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes, whatever seems good to me, I will do in worship. May that never define you or me, friends. If we have the heart of God and we are called men and women after God's own heart, where is the one place, think of it, we would ask, what does God want? If not in worship. Friends, Jesus says Pharisaism is defined like this. Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Whether that tradition is incense and bells in worship, or that tradition is an electric guitar playing Hillsong and Bethel, it is all Pharisaism. Turn the tables, friend, on the conversation. Turn the tables, because the devil is a liar. If they call you a Pharisee, or they say your church is Pharisaical, cite Mark 7, full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your tradition. 
Remind them that these are the blessed words of our Lord and Savior Jesus. This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. It's a solemn thing to think that you or I may worship the Lord in vain. Not many think it, and so not many stop to ask, What does God want that I may not ever dare worship him in vain? And so the RPW teaches that out of the heart, you are to give God what he commands. And that is the heart of a worshiper. It should define the very word worshiper. And so for our final heading, I want us to consider the king of the RPW. And so I want to briefly treat, and this may not be something you're familiar with in the context of public worship, but I want to treat the topic of church authority in our remaining time. You already heard that the kingship of Christ is a pillar of the regulative principle. Deuteronomy 12.28, whenever you hear words like these, observe and hear all these words which I command thee, you're hearing of his kingly office, aren't you? That's his command to do those things. And so I want you to consider the Great Commission too. Matthew 28, all power or authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Not just evangelism. Do you hear his kingship? What are we to teach? All things whatsoever I have commanded you. All things include what he taught concerning worship. Whether it's in Mark 7, John 4, or as the word made flesh, all the rest of the scriptures as well. What you need to know is, this is not my church. This is not the elders' church. This is Christ's church. He gets to govern it. He gets to command what is done here. And so I want you to remember something about church power. Church government is important in the context of worship. Church government, according to the Bible, is that Christ is the head of his church. Not popes, not kings, not even pastors or elders. I have no power or right to make you do anything in worship Christ has not commanded. Full stop. And this is where, again, people miss the heart of the RPW. It protects you. Friends, it protects you. It protects you from the tyranny of elders. There is a great blessing that comes. Your conscience is not infringed upon. For your conscience, as that great reformer said, must be bound to what? The word of God. My conscience must be bound to the word of God. That's what Luther said at Worms. And yours must be too. I am not the Lord of your conscience. Only Jesus Christ is. Do you know how many come? to RPCNA churches because they are seeking refuge from what goes on in many churches. It is because a guiding principle in Reformed churches should be that the word of God tells us that Christ is king and head of the church and not the elders and not the pastors. And so we can't invent anything in worship that would bind your conscience. This is such an important principle, friends, that uh, I remember back to my um, presbytery exam. And in my ordination exam, 
the presbytery asked me a question. They said, explain the difference between magisterial and ministerial authority. And tell us what kind of authority you have or will have as a pastor. And obviously I passed. Don't worry. Uh, Pastors are ministers, friends. Isn't that what they're called? They're called ministers. And that word means servant. We are God's servants. We are your servants. I only have ministerial authority. What does 2 Corinthians 1.24 say? Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith ye stand. We have no dominion over your faith, friends. We are helpers, we are servants. The only thing I can declare to you is, thus saith the Lord out of the word of God. If I were to tell you right now, let us get up and dance in worship, I would be overstepping my bounds. And I will be trampling on your conscience, for God hath not commanded it. If I were to tell you, get up and recite a creed in worship like the apostolic, the apostles creed, I would also be overstepping my bounds and trampling your conscience. Even if I said, let's go and recite chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, I would be overstepping my bounds and making your conscience pained. In contrast, there is magisterial authority, and that's the authority that the Roman Catholic Church imagines it has. It's magisterium, after all, you remember, where they can dictate that their tradition can be imposed on the conscience of worshipers. Magisterial authority is the authority of a legislator. I am no legislator, friends. The Bible is our constitution. And that's how tradition has ended up being equal to the word of God in Catholicism. But that was the same problem with the Pharisees, where they legislated new laws. That is magisterial authority. And it's not authority that the church has. And sad to say, too many evangelical and even reformed churches have gone that way. But as I explained to Presbytery, I only have ministerial authority. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors so that your conscience is only bound to the word of God. I have no dominion over your faith. I minister to you. Now if you walk astray, yes, the king has given the keys of the kingdom to elders to exercise church discipline, but only for sins that are defined by the word of God. Not because I don't like you. I can't discipline you for anything else uh, but what comes out of the word of God by his command. That's ministerial authority. And so what I want you to reflect on, if you've never thought of it before, there is too much tyranny in worship disguised by the pretense of Christian liberty. But in reality, because the devil is so twisted and subtle, sin deceives us so readily. But in effect, it is bondage. When you make somebody do what is not found in the word of God. And so in this place, beloved, your conscience should be utterly free. Because there is a true blessing in this regulative principle of worship. It is the case, friends, that doing God's ways, uh, doing things God's way leads to blessing. And that's what we find in this principle. That is the graciousness of God in this principle, a free conscience. I love that I don't have to worry about what will get 
what we will get in our services. We work hard as a church to make sure your conscience can be clear here. We look for divine warrant for every portion of the service. Do you know how many of your brethren suffer under tyranny and worship, pressing on their consciences that they are doing something God does not like, that they may be offering strange fire, and it's all come through those who lead worship. It burns their conscience and it offends God. And all of that is laid on the heads of elders, and elders will have to give an account. And that makes me tremble, friends, as an elder. It makes me, as an elder, as well, embrace this regulative principle. Because in Mark chapter 7, who was Christ chastening? It was the leaders of God's people. When Christ is not honored by his elders, his people suffer, and Christ is greatly displeased. Displeased. Yet too often, it is the people who will be hurt by the normative principle that disregard the regulative principle by crying, give me Christian liberty, if they only understood what that is. Or they cry Pharisee. And yet I am reminded of what we heard of in the book of Exodus this morning. Send us back to Egypt where we were free when God has liberated you. Well, I had one last scripture I wanted to read to you, and it may seem odd at first, but I think it's worthy of reflection. And it's Jeremiah 7, verse 31. Listen to this, this text. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. This is a, a striking text. Um, Uh, George Gillespie treats it briefly in English Popish Ceremonies. First, right, if if you think of this text, first that it would ever enter into man's heart to burn his sons and daughters in worship. Does it not show you how depraved our hearts are, friends? Does that not show you how depraved our hearts are? And how utterly untrustworthy the heart is as a guide But Gillespie demonstrated that while the Lord might have said, how wicked you are to burn your sons and daughters. For that's where we start, right? That's our concern. What is God's primary concern in the text? Instead, he says, I commanded them not. Neither came it into my heart. You see, we are too concerned about our heart's desires in worship. But God has said, think on what has come into my heart. You burn children, why? Because you do not care what I commanded. You never cared what came into my heart. And so as you worship, always ask, what has come into God's heart? And where will you find, boys and girls, what has come into God's heart? The word of God. For it is the heart of God revealed to us. And if you do ask, what has come into God's heart? Praise the Lord, you are the worshiper the Father seeks in John chapter 4. So may this principle always guide you, people of God, as you glorify him and enjoy him forever and find that you are pleasing your father by giving him what has come into his heart. Amen. Please rise for prayer.